0: The reference point for the teachings of this retreat are the teachings of the Buddha. And the purpose for these teachings and the purpose, primary purpose of the Buddha's teachings can be summarized in four words, the cessation of suffering. In one passage, one occasion, the Buddha said, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. He understood us how to understand suffering and bring about the end of suffering. In his time, there was a man who had been a monk, and in his time as a monk, under the Buddha, he often was dissatisfied with what the Buddha had to teach, or what he was doing. And he kept wanting the Buddha to perform miracles, great psychic displays. And at some point, uh, eventually, he was discouraged, and he left being a monk, and he returned to his lay life and went around town. And um, he would complain or criticize the Buddha for merely teaching the cessation of suffering. Merely. So here at IRC, merely to bring the end of suffering. And, and sorry it's such a modest goal. <laughs> <coughs> and it, it might be my interpretation of the Buddha or One of the reasons I like this this is the purpose of the teachings and the practice is that um, suffering hurts, whether it's in ourselves or in others. And I think that there's a, a force in our heart, impulse in our heart to care about our own suffering and to care about the suffering of others. And the movement is expressed most beautifully, I think, in the word compassion. To have compassion for oneself, compassion for others. Compassion means that both the empathy with the distress and suffering of others, but also to wish for its cessation, to end it, for it to end, to people not to suffer. And once people don't suffer, then there's no need for compassion. There might be other forms of care or love that we feel, but the compassion is, just, is not needed. And it could be argued that there are more grand spiritual attainments than the cessation of suffering. There are miracles, there are maybe gr- amazing states of consciousness, states of oneness States of, states of cosmic interconnectedness. There's all kinds of wonderful things to experience. But one of the reasons I like this, the cessation of suffering, is that it's just a cessation of suffering. That's good enough for me. It just, uh, you know, that, I don't really feel driven for states of mind just for the sake of states of mind I feel fairly content with life as it is if there were no suffering but also the absence of suffering is an absence that allows something to be something to show itself to manifest itself and I have a deep trust or contentment with what is left when the forces of suffering are no longer there, when we're no longer caught in our desires, addictions, if we're not no longer caught in <coughs> our hostility and resentments, we're no longer caught in our anxieties no longer caught in our self-preoccupation. When those things are absent, I have a lot of, to me, it allows for our hearts, natural movements of our inner life, to have space, to move forward, come out. And I don't know what that's supposed to look like when there's no suffering. For everyone, but I have confidence or content with that. That's, and because I've learned through this practice, the value of getting out of our own way. The value of allowing the wisdom which with, that's within to come forth. The wisdom that can't be ours, but it's it lives within us. To allow the. <coughs> To allow the unfolding, the maturation, the growth, uh, healing, that seems to be built into or for some reason built into our psychophysical system to move in that direction, if if given the chance. So some of you know I'm fond of the, using as an analogy, the Idea of you know cutting your finger. You can accidentally cut your finger on the chopping veggies in the kitchen. Someone could intentionally cut their finger a little bit, but we don't exactly intentionally heal ourselves. We might want to heal ourselves, but it's not like our intention that is the healing of our, the cut. We can have the aspiration, we can have the desire for it, and we have a role. And the role is that we keep the cut clean, and maybe covered and protected, to optimize the body's own healing potential, so that healing can happen. And, um, and I, I don't haven't studied the physiology of the healing of cuts, but I suspect that it's a very complicated phenomena with all kinds of chemical, hormonal, neurological phenomena being mustered together. And I don't have the intelligence myself to direct everything that has to happen. But it happens. If it's clean, if there's an absence of dirt and bacteria or whatever. And the same thing with the heart. The heart has a way of healing. Provided we create the optimal conditions for it to heal. You kind of get out of the way, stay out of the way, keep it clean, keep it open. Don't infuse the bacteria of anger, the bacteria of resentment or criticism or all kinds of things that we insert that kind of gunk it up, makes it hard for the heart to operate, so to get out of the way, and so I've learned through practice how powerful it is to get out of the way, to not be directly in the fray to not be poking around in the wound. But we have an important role in getting out of the way and that is to be present. Uh, Being present is such an important thing. And so we spend a lot of time discovering how to stay present, how to cultivate the mind that's present, let go of the forces of distraction, you know, as a good Buddhist teacher would have teachings that would perhaps really make it so thoroughly convincing that the best place you would ever be was just, you know, 90%, 99% of the time was really right in the present moment and you'd do it. But uh, I mean, I'm not that good of a teacher and I don't know anybody who's able to do, do that, you know, it's like just make it, make the case so clear. Okay, I guess that's where I'll stay. I think we have to be that teacher for ourselves. We have to kind of learn slowly and develop the capacity to be present, to be here, be willing to, and be interested and see the value of it. But part of the value is that being present in a simple way is a kind of way of getting out of the way, of allowing, giving space for something to unwind or unfold or open up or let go or heal or so all these different things that happen. And so we do anapanasati is one of the strategies for this, to give yourself over to the breathing, just breathing in and breathing out. Some people say, well, the breath is boring. You know, it's pretty dull. But one of, the, one of the advantages of just staying with the rhythm of breathing over and over again is that you're giving breathing room to your life. You're no longer kind of mucking it up or no longer putting your finger and poking around the wound or making it bigger or making new ones or something. You're, you know, You're occupied in a good place, just the breathing, a safe place, just the breathing. You know, and and um, for some of people, the alternative to the breath is not that good. So just stay with the breathing. Just be, be with it. Stay, and breathe. And yes, maybe the breath is boring, initially, but it's also a way of getting out of the way of not adding a lot of stories, a lot of ideas, a lot of judgments, a lot of criticism, not being caught up in desires and aversions, and kind of, kind of, you know, clearing the space, clearing the air, clearing the heart, clearing the mind, to allow something deeper to unfold. And so, the sixteen steps of Anapanasati, you know, that's part of their function. And I, I see these 16 steps both as a technique that you can follow step by step, but also I see it as a description that no kind of in ordinary circumstances or a kind of, kind of an average circumstance or something, it's a, it's a description of a sequence that kind of the kind of practice will unfold, our lives will unfold. So if you sit down and bring your attention to your breathing. Breathing is not a 100% neutral place. Breathing is the nexus, the meeting place of so many different streams of our inner life, our conscious life, our unconscious life, our our, our, uh, emotional life, our intentional life, our physical life spiritual life if you like since the word spiritual has breath in its latin root and um and so you know and i remember a friend of mine living at green gulch zen center uh, he fell off the roof of of one of the buildings there and broke his arm and uh, so the fire department came first Responders came and he was laying on the ground and they were bending over him and he had a broken arm and was in pain And he'd been his end student for a long time and the firefighter said to him breathe deeply <laughs> 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 He looked at me and rolled his eyes <laughs> The um, So we begin by being with our breath. It's not a neutral place, it's a powerful place to be. More powerful, I think, than most people realize because they haven't learned to tune in to their breathing. And maybe coming off the street to sit down to meditate, the generic general thing is that the breathing then is probably big and large breaths or long breaths maybe. And as a person sits down and settles in, and tunes in, and because they're tuning into their breathing, they're not spinning out anymore about something or other, they're calming down. And as they calm, the breath becomes shorter, which is the second step of Anapanasati. It describes a process. As it gets shorter and more settled, and it gets more and more settled and relaxed and calm, it's relatively common then to start becoming more attuned to one's body. You're sitting still and quiet and there's not much going on and so we become aware of our body, the third step of anapanasati. If you become aware of your body it's and you're tense, You probably that would be the next thing you'd be aware of. Wherever you're holding or tense. and. Sometimes, even if you don't want to, the body will relax in spite of you. There's a movement towards, you know, letting go, of, letting go of the work. It's work to, to be tense. It can be exhausting to go around tense. Or, so but there's a relaxation, a movement towards it, relaxing. And as we're in our body more and breathing more and relaxing more, chances are that there's, from there comes a sense of well-being the next two steps of Anapanasati. And as we feel better about here, feeling such a well-being here, this inner well-being is kind of a little bit of an inner well-being, so our inner life starts becoming more richer or more valuable or more more important. Maybe more important than the outer world of whatever is out, out there in the world. And this continual turning inward brings up a clearer recognition of what's going on in the mind, mental activity. Wondering, noticing when the mind wanders off and gets complicated or it's preoccupied in things. Notice they're being caught up in certain beliefs and opinions and attitudes. So we start noticing the mental formations, the mental constructs. The more stiller, quieter this process of breathing brings us, the more we see it. And there again, It's pretty natural, I think, at some point, in some circumstances, to say, you know, just to relax those mental constructs. Let them go. I don't need them anymore. They're not to the point, sitting here. So more relaxation. And then it becomes the inner life, the state of inner life, the state of awareness, deeper attitude of awareness that we have stands out more clearly and it can be quite sweet to begin feelings, intimacy and connection to this inner life of attention, of awareness, inner state of kind of our being, kind of kind of closely connected to the very feeling of being alive or just beingness, just to be, just to be alive. So a sense of gladness, satisfaction, delight, or since I, I like the language of a sense of rightness, There's a rightness here. One of the powerful things that my Zen teacher told me was he said at some point, casually to me, I think he asked me, "How, how are you, what are you up to? And I gave him a little litany of things I was doing. And then after I finished telling him what I was up to, he just said, just to be alive is enough Just to be alive is enough. Just to be here, have certain sense of rightness to be here. It's easier to get settled. And it's possible to get concentrated without intending to be concentrated. It's possible. You know, there's there's a movement in the mind to be settled, to be focused. It's kind of like a concentrated mind is a mind that, like a bowl. And you put a marble in the bowl and it's off the side and it will go up and down the sides until and then slowly the momentum goes out until finally the bowl comes to the center of the bowl the ball, ball the marble comes to the center and it rests there so it's kind of like we have loose marbles right in, the, in our head <laughs> in our skull and they're rolling up and down and 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 uh, what happens is we're, all, we're we're always putting our hands in the bowl and pushing and adding to the momentum to the marbles and we're like busy kind of keeping them going but if you can take your hand out of the bowl and leave those poor little marbles alone <laughs> what they want to do is to come to rest at the center concentrated that's kind of the move there's a movement in the mind naturally to yourself to be settled and calm and focused and here at home so so to feel this rightness, just to be alive is enough to let go, just to be here, very simple. Not struggle or fight or try to fix or make something happen. So, that, so just keep breathing, a settling, concentrating. And then the, the, the kind of concentration involves, you know, less clinging, less grasping, less fighting. And there's also simultaneously or following it, a movement of to be liberated, breathing in, liberating the mind; breathing out, liberating the mind. Movement of releasing, the pull, th- the attachments we have. So there's a kind of a natural movement. This, this, I think, I think to some degree. I mean, this is a little bit idealistic to say it's always this way, but to some degree, the system knows what to do. There's a wisdom. There's understanding. There's a process that's built into who we are, if we can get out of the way. But get out of the way with awareness, with upright, alert, attention, and just let this discover what's here. And part of that discovery is, or part of that movement is a movement of change. Change is not the enemy in Buddhism, the whole Buddhist path is based on the idea that change can happen. Our our state of mind can change. How we are can change. And we're kind of creating the conditions to allow that change to happen. And as we go along, I think, as we move along in this get more settled, there's more and more value in getting out of the way. More and more value in trusting a deep inner unfolding, that this unfolding, evolution, or movement, the growth, can continue on its own. And so the sense of uh, wisdom arising. And one of the ways that wisdom arises is to become wise, or to be tuned into, how much life is changing, the changing aspect of life. Just to know that you're changing, you can change in beneficial ways. That's can be an inspiring form, of, for, uh, inspiring form of wisdom. Oh, it's possible to change. It's possible to move in a different direction. Maybe not easy to do, but it's possible. That's a piece of wisdom. But to know, to see the the change in the Constant and things are always changing and moving and coming and going, and then understanding how we relate to that, how we relate to change. Things appear and things disappear. Some people have general, you know, top two or three approaches to meeting change. Some people their approach is to hate change. No change. Some people can't wait for change. Some people are frightened for change. Some people, you know, there's kind of like uh, frightened, you know. So, but change will happen. And I think one of the interesting things about retreats, doing a lot of them, is to go through the same thing over and over again. Same kind of schedule, meals, some of the retreats I've been to, I, um, I just felt to me like all we were doing was eating. <laughs> it's like the most, I guess it was because it was maybe the most entertaining thing or something, you know, you know. And then to watch the relationship to food and to meals, oh, there's a meal again, oh, there's a meal again. Oh, there comes the desire, the clinging, there comes the fear, there's not going to be enough. There comes, you know, how am I going to save this? Here comes, I hope no one notices how much food I took. I, you know, it was on and on. And so we start seeing this over and over, come back to this over and over again. So after a while, we, see, we kind of, because of the regularity, and seeing the same thing over and over again, we slowly get wiser and wiser about it. You know, and we just learn to have more equanimity or ease or we know we know our tendencies so well that we don't fall for them so easily so the idea of change and new beginnings and new endings and watching how it happens in their mind is very very powerful and then to see um how at times when the mind is really concentrated and quiet to to actually grok to really kind of understand how Thorough, thoroughly. The way that we perceive or experience the world within us and out of us are constantly shifting and moving. It's it's like it's like looking at the pixels of the computer. You know, from a you know there might be a picture that looks like a nice photograph of some natural spot, but then if you kind of um, I guess I don't know. Zoom in more and more and more. Eventually, you don't you lose the picture and you see the pixels there. It's all built with pixels. There's a way of kind of when we really, really hear for the detailed moment, moment unfolding. It's phenomenal how things are arising and passing and moving and shifting, and phenomenal how. Our attention, even if attention is relatively stable and focused, how much even the attention, the perception that we see when we're attentive, is moving and changing and we're picking up this and picking up that and that experience and this experience. It's just dance and movement of change. And then we can see that uh, in that flow of change that um, concepts, ideas, clinging, desires, fears, are kind of resistance to the change, or interference with it, or a disconnection from it. But to get focused and centered on this change and feel the goodness of it, or feel the rightness of it, of not being caught, not being lost, not being preoccupied, gives the system here more and more connection to a healthy way of being to an an easeful way of being, to be at peace, peaceful, centered, grounded. And then, the next step of Anapanasati, breathing in, one observes fading away. Breathing out, one observes fading away, the word is viraga. And uh, it also has the meaning of, uh, one observes, dispassion. And uh, most English-speaking people don't like dispassion as a word. But if you just kind of imagine the best possible meanings of it. You know, it's, uh, the word uh, raga also can mean lust, so maybe dislust, non-lust or something. And, um, but there's also the word also means to f- like the fading away of a dye, from a cloth. So that usually translates fading away of lust or passion or that kind of fire of greed, hate, and delusion. And so, some of the deeper forms of attachment, some of the deeper clingings and desires, some of the more tenacious ones, it seems like what's being talked about here is a process of fading away, as opposed to pushing a button and it goes away suddenly. Some of you might, some people have this, just waiting for the big bang of enlightenment. And, and, and then they lived ever happy, ever after. But there are a number of times where the places where the Buddha talks about this process of uh, fading away, the, the thinning away, the wearing away of our attachments, our clingings, our preoccupations, our fears, our angers. And I think it's very realistic, this idea, that that we don't looking for like the magic key, that magic button that's gonna just make us, everything's gonna be good and from then on, you know, it's kind of magical thinking. But rather a fading away, a thinning, a diminishing of suffering. And so rather than looking to be, I think it's something. I think it's something very mature and wise about not looking for the solution, and nothing else counts. There's not a hundred percent solution. If this is Buddhism. The Buddhism better prove itself to me, and it better be all or nothing. I think that uh, it's much more wise to just to see. Look at that. I'm suffering less than yesterday or last year. Look, there's less clinging. There's less fear. There's less hate. There's less confusion. It's, it looks like it's thinning out. There's more ease. There's more peace. There's more love. There's more compassion. There's more freedom. And slowly, the attachments fall away, and so, breathing in, observing, fading away, the diminishment. Breathing out, seeing the fading away. And you can see that with your thinking. Maybe some of you have seen this already. That, um, at least, when I look at my mind. There are times I sit down to meditate and it seems to me like my thoughts are the the most substantial thing in the world. Like nothing has more power, strength, substance, heaviness, authority than than what I'm thinking. (sighs) Boy, oh boy. I mean, you know, like. But then, as I settle in and calm down, and the thinking thinking gets thinner and thinner, softer and softer, and after a while it becomes like just a thin veil, or just kind of almost like a small cloud that's drifting by. It just seems so ephemeral and it doesn't it come a thought can occur but it has no authority it has no weight it has no solidity it has no you know there's no movement to hold on to it or do anything with it and the thinking gets thinner weaker softer and then after a while it's just not even my thoughts it's just a thought that's drifting by and identification with it or appropriating it as mine is not needed. So this thinning away, fading away. And then being content, completely content with that. because to want anything more is to go is to go back into the world of mental constructs and desires and wants. Just start feeling things are diminishing and settling down, and well, now I'm getting, you know, this is good, but, you know, it's, you know, it's only an hour until dinner, and you've got to finish this up. <laughs> Get on with it, you know. Let's let's speed it up here or something, and then the mind gets busy and spinning and all that stuff, and actually we go backwards. Get out of the way allow this process of fading, allow this process of opening, of growth of peace it's Don't don't rock the boat, don't push it, just trust it, trust it. It's very important because uh, as the mind gets more and more settled and peaceful and concentrated, it's more and more important that it just becomes uh, feel so ordinary that it's like so, like brushing your teeth. It's like you don't really, you do it, maybe with attention, but it's like, you, you, most people don't get self-conscious about brushing their teeth, like, who's watching? And did I brush that second teeth just right? And, you know, just, you know, and I, just, just, just do it. It's very, very simple, just do this process, just be. <coughs> get out of the way, be simple. Do it, do it, do it, fading away, fading away, thinning and thinning. And generally that this thinning and fading process, the thinning of thoughts, the fading away of attachments, the simplification feels exquisite. Usually it feels quite beautiful because of the peace, the ease, the well, well-being it comes from, comes with it. The fact that there's no conflict anymore, we're not struggling with anything, we're not bored about anything. Boredom is a pretty gross, pretty large scale mental construct. So there's no more boredom. Just here, still, quiet. It feels so nice. And so it feels so nice to go further with it. So good. So this idea of trusting just being, trusting, not being involved, not that just being alive is enough, trusting, just being attentive and present and letting the, trusting the process. Things thin, quieter and quieter. And then at some point, there can be a cessation, a stopping, an ending. And an ending sometimes that is noticeable, and you see now, oh, this struggle that I had is no longer here. I remember, many years ago, there was a woman who came to me and said, "It came to me maybe six months after doing a retreat with me, and she said, after that last retreat, my cynicism stopped." I haven't been cynical since that retreat. It, it ceased. Pretty cool, I thought. People sometimes with certain addictive tendencies, they said, they're surprised, it's gone, no longer here. Certain conceits, certain kind of way in which we identify as the self, gone, It stopped, no longer can find it. Certain resentments that maybe we lived with for years fade away, then they're gone, they ceased. So the the 15th step, Anapanasati, is breathing in, observing cessation. Breathing out, observing cessation. And I love it that this word is just observe. Just observe. You don't have to do anything with it. It isn't like, observe cessation and get a merit badge. (coughs) Or some kind of, you know, prize or something. Just observe it. this this last, as I said yesterday, the last tetrad only involves observing. Just watch. It's really like getting out of the way. Trusting this unfolding. Trusting the wisdom of letting go. The wisdom of realizing, I don't need this anymore. Not Not being interested anymore. Not being committed anymore. Not being mesmerized or tricked. By the tricks of the mind, the wisdom of stepping back and leaving things alone, not picking things up, and letting things fade away. Part of the advantage of letting things fade away, or what it, what it involves, is a lot of patience. To be patient, let it t- let it let it unfold, and it's however long it takes. it's no hurry. and then there's a at some point there's a cessation of suffering at some point there can be a much bigger more complete experience of anything and everything that we would call suffering just drops like the bucket the bottom of the bucket just drops away the floor we're sitting on just drops and there's that suffering just not there Classically in Buddhism, that dropping off, dropping of cessation of suffering is considered to be awakening or liberation. But it's kind of difficult to say you know, that I become liberated when the, the whole idea of identifying an I as the okay. whole, you know, that's going to hold this liberation is it's kind of difficult to find. So I think a nicer way of talking about it, the liberation, is that we we will never get liberated. That's the good news. (laughs) You'll never get liberated. So you don't have to worry too much about it. However, what happens is you liberate all things. Everything gets liberated from you. And now we're talking about something useful gets liberated from your projection, liberated from your desires, your fears, your attachments. You know, everything we see and touch inside and outside of us has become free of us. So each thing that exists in the world can just be there in its own way, its pristine way. It can just be there. The, the, fl- the flower in the garden just be a flower. It doesn't have to live with our ideas of what we can do with the flower and The sunset can just be the sunset, Uh, our friend can just be our friend, our, you know, just each thing is, in a certain kind of way, given the gift of being allowed to be itself, without us appropriating it, or doing something with it, or wanting something from it. And here again we have this process of leaving something alone. We leave ourselves alone. There's a kind of depth and value in leaving things alone. A certain kind of way of the heart, the mind, not imposing itself on the world. And then, with the cessation of suffering, the Buddha's path has come to an end. But your path through life has not. But, you know, then you can live your life the way you see fit. Maybe it's good enough to not suffer. Maybe it doesn't have to be anything more grand or spectacular to live a fulfilled life or a good life than to not suffer. And and then to trust what comes out of that absence. Chances are fairly high that you're not not going to end up being a couch potato. Couch potatoes arise from a lot of mental constructs. There's a lot of complicated inner life that leads someone to become a couch potato, believe it or not. But when this world of inner constructs has kind of settled away, what flows, what comes, what motivations, what desires, what wishes, what impulses? come from a place where there's no suffering, and no reaction to suffering, and no struggles with suffering, and no running away from suffering. So the simplest way of talking about the purpose of practice is four words. The cessation of suffering. I believe it's one of the most profound things a person can do. Whether we do it for ourselves, or whether we do it to support others, or we do it both for ourselves or for others. I think it's one of the most profound things we can do. One of the most useful things we can do. So as you continue here on this retreat, and sit here, practice, you have, if you want, as your companion, your breathing. Breathing in and breathing out. There's support to get out of the way. Support to settle down. Support to come home deep inside of yourself. Support to let your thoughts become thinner and thinner. and to come to that place in the fourth tetrad where you're willing or interested to really be here with the breathing, really be here so that something deeper inside that's, n- that's not really you can operate, can unfold. Wisdom can unfold. The path can unfold on its own. So I hope that, Denise, that you maybe can experiment or try out, take the risk of trusting just being here in the most simple possible way, breathing in and breathing out. giving yourself over to just now, to here, to see what will unfold, see how that will deepen or move or change without you interfering, with you getting out of the way to here, with what's here, without thoughts interfering agendas, without needing something to happen. Just here. What's here? What unfolds? What wisdom has a chance to operate?